We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month which obviously no pressure whatever you've got we are so appreciative to have but we have awesome gifts for you if you want a hand addressed letter from morgan and isabeau maybe with some special whoa stickers other merch just uh visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons Jiminy Christmas. Humbug. I'm Isabeau. I'm Morgan. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About flames on the sides of trucks. About sexist pigs. About roaring fireplaces. About high, elegant pubic bones. Glad that you mentioned that. This podcast is definitely about that. About rapscallion younger brothers. About feeling a fullness in your groin. About dads choosing your sexual partners. About being snowbound. About finding yourself. Uh, For the first time, it's about Ireland. But mostly, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This episode we are discussing. Four Christmas Stories by America's Favorite Romance Authors, A Gift of Joy. Uh, Let me know if any of these authors are your favorite romance author. We've got Virginia Henley. Ever heard of her? Have not. Brenda Joyce. Another big old question mark from me. Fern Michaels. Yes. Joe Goodman. No. So not my favorite. (laughs) You know, yeah, Fern Michaels is the only one I recognize. But guess what? We're not going to talk about her story. We're going to talk about the first two. We're going to talk about a story called Christmas Eve by Virginia Henley. And before you think that title is too on the nose, (laughs) The main character's name is Eve, and the story takes place on Christmas, so joke's on you. <laughs> it's a nesting doll of holiday treats. And in in case you were wondering, uh, I love that you're saying holiday treats. This is 100% a uh, Christmas book. Yes, absolutely. This is a lump of coal. We are not dealing with any other holiday tradition or uh even acknowledging the existence of other december holidays no we are actively acknowledging the christ child right after we have sex in a sauna absolutely we do that um this is ruthlessly christmas yeah so the first story is christmas eve by virginia henley Um, And the second story is the miracle by brenda joyce it is a season of miracles. 
so they say. Lest you thought that this compendium, A Gift of Joy, would be about anything but, you would have been too hopeful. So I looked up our two authors. Thank you. I really appreciate that homework. Uh, Can I tell you about them? I wish you would. Maybe I should read the back of the book for each story and then tell you about the author and you let me know if any of this surprises you. Okay. Um, So we'll start with Christmas Eve by Virginia Henley. Snowbound on Lake Michigan, a devout feminist discovers that a macho firefighter has something to teach her about being a woman in love. I wish that you had put more emphasis on devout feminist and teach her. Teach her. There you go. (laughs) thank you for taking that note all right we've got a couple notes um and we we don't take them personally this is a collaborative work of art that we're creating here we go snowbound on lake michigan a devout (laughs) feminist there you go discovers that a macho firefighter has something to teach her about being a woman in love (laughs) Oh my god, yes. This Christmas, Snowbound (laughs) on Lake Michigan. Couldn't do it better, Morgan. That was amazing. Thank you. So this is a contemporary romance. Sure was. uh, Set in Michigan. For those of you who aren't super boned up on North American geography, uh, Lake Michigan touches uh, more than Michigan. It's a big boy. She's for sure in Michigan. She's in Grand Rapids, for those of you following along and that care about the geography of Michigan. So I I actually want to, like, without getting too in the weeds, can we go back to you were going to tell me about Virginia Henley? Yeah. Because I I, I think the the misshapenness of the geography of Michigan is actually probably maybe going to come up (laughs) with the biography because, like, it's, it's clear to me that Virginia Henley isn't from Michigan. Oh, um, let's, let's start, can I start by asking you, why is it clear to you that she's not from Michigan? I'll go ahead and put a pin on that, because the way in which she was describing Grand Rapids and the way in which, like, the geography around Grand Rapids is functioning was weird, and she also kind of made it seem like the professor boyfriend wasn't teaching at Michigan State so much as he was teaching in Ann Arbor, which isn't super far from Grand Rapids, but it's also, like, more than an hour yeah. So, like, it's those things. And also that would be University of Michigan. Correct. What tipped me off <laughs> was not so much the geography of Michigan, because um, I can ask people where on the mitten they're from all I want. Uh, it does not mean a ton to me. Uh, the thing that tipped me off is... Using the phrase bloody for emphasis. That would do it. I have not met a lot of Americans, let alone Michiganders, (laughs) who describe things as bloody. Unless they're talking about steak. I'm pretty sure at one point she literally says, you bloody well can. So that's what tipped me off. But... Isabel, would you humor me and Google Virginia Henley? Yes. I would love you to see her author photo. Oh, God. So Jenny is from Bolton. I was hoping that you'd say Jenny. Is from Bolton, England. um, And she was born in 1935. Wow. Oh, wow. Wow. Both of her author photos are horrible. Don't say horrible. 
Okay. <laughs> oh shit. Oh, describe her author photo. Well, I'm looking at two in Google Images, but the main one I think is going to be a bright pink headshot where her hair is yes delightfully yes. or horrifically in a massive beehive but also permed. It's as tall as her face is tall. 100%. She's got uh, big spangly earrings. She does have lovely cheekbones, a lot of eye makeup, and a very, very loud uh, sequined red dress that matches her lipstick. Is that the one you're looking at? Yes. I believe that Virginia Henley is a woman whose signature color is red. Yes. I think we can say that by this photo. Because all of her other photos, there are two others. Both She's in red in both of those as well. Something else I think is interesting about Virginia Henley is that she is a writer of historical romance. Ah. So one of the things that's interesting about this compendium is that it has a combination of contemporary and historical romances. I think of contemporary and historical romances as being kind of like the first filter for any reader. You kind of know what you're in the mood for, at least, if you don't have like a full-blown preference. So the fact that this book has a combination split 50-50 of contemporary and historical Christmas romance, but also has an author of historical romances writing a contemporary is really interesting because these compendiums, at least nowadays, are used as a way to advertise, right? Like authors don't make a lot of money off of them, but they're kind of hoping that if you're uh, – you know, a Sarah McLean fan, then maybe you'll also like their stories. Um, but these authors, I'm wondering, like, what was, it does make me more interested in this question of, like, what, like, a gift of joy doesn't make sense to me as an advertising tool. No, especially now that I know that Virginia Henley not only wrote historicals, but, like, specifically, like, Renaissance and medieval and that's like, yeah, not your t- that's not even your typical run of the mill historicals, right? Those are like Regency. So she's writing like niche historicals and for her to do a contempo feels. But it's also like medieval was super popular for a while. It was. But not by 1995. Mm-mm. So that's kind of interesting as well. Let's talk about Brenda Joyce. Oh, Brenda. And her story, The Miracle. And we are intentionally talking about these two different stories together Mm -hmm. as a sandwich without a filling. Two pieces of bread. Two pieces of bread. Two vertical pieces of bread. The miracle. In a remote castle, an American beauty tames a wild Irish nobleman and finds that after innocence comes passion and a very special Christmas gift. This is not at all representative of the story. (laughs) I guess the castle is, like, fairly remote. Yeah, it's on the leeward side of an island. Yeah. Off of Ireland, which made me, it's like, well, are those the Aran Islands? Like, again, geography is not the strong suit of it's, it's, these stories. It's in Connacht, which is, you know, still a, a place today. The, he's certainly not a wild Irish nobleman. He's, he's just kind of like a regular nobleman, I guess. What do we know about Brenda? Brenda 
is American. Weird. And she's, I think, in her 50s currently. She wrote this when she was young. Yeah, so she was in her early 20s, I believe, when this book came out. She's a horse girl. Yeah, that totally makes sense, though. Mm-hmm. 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 That does not surprise. Big time. Yeah, big horse girl energy. Guess what kind? Frisians? Appaloosas. No. Arabians. What? <laughs> wow. She's like very pretty horse horse girl. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Okay. She describes herself as a New Yorker. She's from upstate New York, so I'm not sure how that works. But she currently lives in Arizona. Virginia Henley died in St. Petersburg, Florida, so... <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> well, that kind of makes sense because people there use bloody for emphasis all the time. A horse girl moving to Arizona and who still calls herself a New Yorker. I don't know. That's like a weird flex, but OK. Yeah. Uh, look up a picture of Brenda Joyce. It won't be as good as Virginia Henley is what I'm guessing. Um, It's its own thing. It's its own thing. That's very diplomatic of you. When you look up, uh, it is very. Whoa, di- it is. It's. It is its own thing. We're talking about certified MILF, Brenda Joyce. (laughs) Who also definitely looked at the Johanna Lindsay author photo and was like, I can do that, but better. Yeah. She, she, well, it's, I think her author photo is probably from the early 2000s. Yeah, absolutely. With those earrings. But she looks great. She does look outstanding. I feel bad for anyone who's getting into the author romance author game post 2010 because the soft focus photos oh my god gorgeous man some of her covers are really racy mm-hmm. all right brenda joyce you came to play all right you're right it's very different she writes historicals um she didn't stay in ireland for long i don't think i think most of her stuff is in scotland but She's also, you know, she's talking 1600s here. She hasn't updated her WordPress since 2015. Brenda. That's a long time ago. She's making room for the rest of us. She's leaving the door open behind her. All right. Oh, and she also writes Westerns, obviously. That makes sense, especially with this amazing locket that she's wearing in her author photo. You know, I wonder if the person who wrote this summary on the back of the book wasn't just like familiar with her oeuvre and was like, oh, wild nobleman. Because having read nothing else of hers, but like seeing like the gist of the rest of her bibliography, I feel like... She tends to like the rakes. And she does, in fact, like this is, for a a short story, we've got two different uh, kissing boys. Not kissing each other. And the cover, like, I know we say this on this show enough, but like the covers in the 80s were just better. I'm so glad you brought up covers in the 80s because that gets at something that I want to talk about. Great. Where would you, where did this bring up for you? This brought up the fact that, you know, as I was reading these stories, I'm just going to do, I'm just going to do a random reading from one of our two stories. Can it be the first one? I I also have selections. Mine is from the first one. Excellent. When the tantalizing aroma of the herbs began to permeate the air, both of them realized how hungry they were. I'm drooling, Eve breathed. Clint's glance flicked over her mouth. Me too, 
he confessed. Like, this is the kind of writing that I think people imagine is what's happening in all romance novels. And in kind of like a vague, overarching way, sure. But I think specifically people imagine interactions like this. However, I think they're picturing covers from the 80s. And I think they're picturing settings that were popular in the 70s. And so it's wild to me that romance comes with so much baggage compared to other genres. It strikes me that these assumptions that people bring to the genre actually require quite a bit of institutional knowledge for like the reference points. Like people are really, I don't think anyone's realizing that, right? They're like collapsing it all in on itself. But to not picture it as like Joanna Lindsay straight through. I think that speaks more to like romance's ability to permeate the culture at every point in its most commercial runs, like let's say 77 to now, there's enough of it always in the zeitgeist that everyone has like these Mm. reference points, even if they aren't readers, right? Because like it's at the grocery store, it's at Target. There's enough romance detritus literally out in the world that if you've never read or even truly encountered it, like if you haven't handled a book, you've still seen a cover or heard someone talk about it or like had someone read a passage out loud. Like Mm -hmm. you You've encountered it in the zeitgeist. And even if you've never like had those firsthand experiences, you've seen it through other kinds of media. Movies talk about it. Radio talks about it. Podcasts talk about it. Like you, you, you literally can't live in the West without having encountered commercial romance novels right. in some form. They're, they're a cultural juggernaut as much as they're a cultural punching bag. I think you are exactly right. I think the detritus of romance is everywhere. And I think also romance, right, is supposed to be inherently accessible. Yes. Whereas I'm thinking about like, even if you think you know Dune without reading it, what would prepare you for Leto the second or Leto the third or whatever? (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good point. I can say that, but I also fully accept that, like, having not read it, I am out to sea. If I had to explain Leto Third, I could probably be like, okay, so here's the three major movements. But I'm, I, I, you know, I also can't explain, like, spice. That the spice must flow. I also can't, <laughs> I can't explain, like, most of Vonda McIntyre. You know, there's just something about those genres that or sci-fi maybe specifically I don't know is horror supposed to be accessible I don't I also think horror and mystery function in the same way that you're speaking about sci-fi because they're like their their cabinets aren't open right romance is just like tits out (laughs) literally because of the covers but also Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's all out there all the time. And so, like, there's this kind of familiarity breeds contempt. And, like, we talk about that in relationships, or at least people do. There's something too familiar about romance in the culture. I didn't know where you were going with this, but this is very fruitful for me. Like, you're really bringing something to the fore here. Where I'm like, I think part of the contempt that romance, like, all this baggage that people bring to the genre is because 
romance is just out there like tits and ass all the time right and it's not just like you know the physical body parts but it's the emotion it's the id that we talk about it's like the fact that it's like dealing in pleasure but that it's so nakedly dealing in pleasure so nakedly commercial like the fact that these books churn like sometimes two and three a year so it's like there's also a ton of pulp pulp in terms of mystery sci-fi and westerns really went out of fashion by the 1950s right and so then horror sci-fi and westerns as we know them really had to make a turn into like big L literature or like find a way to substantiate themselves critically. Romance didn't make that turn because it didn't have to commercially. Well, and I think there that's such a good point. And I think I see like a trend, but I want to talk about how, because I think what's happening now, probably not a trend, probably like an important lasting movement in the romance genre but how much it sucks that romance content is assumed to be this 1995 culture war reactionary stuff as opposed to the weird and wonderful world. Not always wonderful, but certainly the weird world of the 70s and part of the 80s, right? What I think sucks for romance is that there are these assumptions of when men were men and women were women kind of thing, which these stories definitely rely on that we're talking about. But lately I've been seeing, and I think it's related to what you've been talking about and to the fact that the actual content of romance is assumed to be this like super binary sort of narrative by outsiders right and like your ability to enjoy a super binary story is kind of dependent either on your ability to subvert it by your content choices or by your ability to like lol at it a lot of romance discourse online is leaning into the kind of self-published stuff that feels like it's chuck tingle but less charming like more nakedly capitalist like people talking about how they're going to read the coronavirus romance on kindle unlimited or the tyrannosaurus sext like witty titles probably pretty explicit content I think the people who talk about those books on like twitter and on tiktok I believe that they're reading these books but I also think that they are reading other romances that they're not telling us about. Like it's easy to be like, I love Ice Planet Barbarians because the romance of it is so obfuscated by like the bombasticism of the concept. It's high concept romance. Whereas like actually finding pleasure in something that's just like a Judith Ivory is much more vulnerable and a lot harder to defend because people don't just like giggle and accept because people assume your Judith Ivory is reading like your Virginia Henley. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. There's a really broad brush that people like to use. And I think the bombast of an Ice Planet's Barbarian is easy to laugh at and it's easy to find pleasure in like the explicit parts. But like Mm. part of the potentially undiscovered country 
pleasure of a Judith Ivory or Laverell Spencer is sometimes like the aching tenderness. The scene in the Judith Ivory proposal where he shaves his mustache as an apology or in the Laverell Spencer when she's at the river and she's just letting water, cold water cascade over her warm body. It's hard to put into words how pleasurable it is to read something like those two scenes, which are simple and clean and also deeply universal. Yeah, it hurts. It hurts to share. And achingly earnest. It's so vulnerable. Like the the text on the page is vulnerable. You're vulnerable as a reader. Like you've entered into this relationship with this book in in, in a space of vulnerability. And it's like... The wider zeitgeist mistakes, I think, this open cabinet business because it is too earnest for the world we live in oftentimes. But it's also like what we as romance consumers share or are choosing to share anymore, right? Yeah. Everyone's calling books steamy even if nothing <laughs> like particularly spicy happens. They're like, oh, they're my spicy books. Um, don't, don't worry. I'm just reading them for the sex, not the part in My Sweet Folly where she sends him the tintype because she wants to be seen and loved. And then he doesn't respond to her letters for like six weeks and she sinks into a pit of self-loathing. Like no one wants to be like, oh yeah, that's the part. <laughs> that's what I read romance for. But that's what I read romance for. And that's so much harder to talk about. Talking about big feelings is hard and i think romance really try like the romance that we're talking about really tries to wrap its arms around big feeling and the romance that we read for this does not (laughs) (laughs) i don't think i had words for that until this conversation about like what the thing is where it's like where you're like when you have a feeling that's too big for your body and like romance is really trying to speak into that space i'm like that's cool these books are not trying to or these stories are not trying to do that they're like i would say there is a couple big feelings in our story of the devout feminist uh, all the feelings are big. Everything is at an 11. That doesn't mean that the story is trying to like articulate those feelings in a way that's smart, tender, or earnest. I want to I read this passage to you. Please do. Eve pulled her Mercedes, naturally, into the parking space that had her name on it, then unlocked the front door of Caldwell Baker Real Estate. Within six months, she hoped to be a full partner in the privately owned company, Snooze. Before she read all the faxes, cute, the other agents started to arrive. Bob and George arrived together because Bob had cracked up his caddy on an icy road and it was in the shop awaiting parts. When Eve started working at the agency, they had joked about her aggressive salesmanship, calling her a ball breaker. But now that her sales topped theirs, they gave her the respect she had earned. I'm sorry about your accident, Bob. It must be milder today. The ice was melting when I drove in. Warm enough to snow, predicted George, who tended to look on the dark side. That's actually an incredibly accurate Midwestern observation. It is, truly. Congratulations on breaking into the president's circle, Eve, Bob said. I haven't quite made it yet, Bob, but thanks. 
Oh, hell, it's only December 23rd, still nine days left before the year's end, he said, winking at George. The sons of bitches hope I don't make it, Eve suddenly realized. Then, <laughs> my favorite, other agents began arriving, and the first thing they did was glance towards the coffee urn beside the bank of filing cabinets. When they saw there was nothing brewing, the second thing they did was glance at Eve. Well, they could wait until their Grecian formula wore off before she would make coffee, she decided, going into her office to go over the listings. When the secretary arrived, the men heaved a collective sigh of relief. They fell over each other, helping her off with her coat and boots, then followed her en masse to the coffee urn. Bo Peep has suddenly found her sheep, Eve thought sarcastically. Eve did not smile. So then our, our main guy, he shows up. Eve, and he makes, uh, he... Gives her an up and down look, lingered on her breasts, went down to her legs, and climbed back up her body to her blonde hair and finally to her eyes. Uh huh. Why don't you take a bloody picture? <laughs> I don't, uh, and he says, I don't think so. I'm looking for Maxwell Robin. He had the deepest voice Eve had ever heard. Of course he does. Maxwell had an early appointment. He won't be here until 10. Are you sure I can't be of some service? I can think of a dozen, none of them appropriate for a real estate office. Eve did not smile back. You could get me a cup of coffee while I'm waiting for Max. Eve stopped dead in her tracks and turned to give him a look that would wither a more sensitive male. She bit back a cutting retort that sprang to mind and said coolly, Feel free to help yourself. <laughs> Don't tempt me, he winked at her. The idea that feel free to help yourself is a cool and cutting remark. And then later on, he stops at a McDonald's for lunch and she says, I don't eat lunch. And then she thinks, oh, I would love a coffee. But she remembers that she refused to get him coffee and she doesn't want to ask him for coffee. In order, I mean, that's true. That's real. That part is real, but, like, part of what I highlighted here is, uh, in spite of the fact that he resented dealing with a female agent, Kelly helped her on with her camel hair coat and held the door open for her. The condescending gestures were politically incorrect in this day and age. Any woman breathing could put on her own coat and open her own doors. Kelly had either been living under a stone or was breathing or being deliberately annoying. And then as they're driving to the place that she's going to show him, he says, so talk to me. Tell me about yourself. He sounded patronizing. I'm a feminazi who loathes macho men, she thought, then remembered her 6% commission. I'm like, what the fuck am I reading? <laughs> it's so, but like, here's the thing. Like, this book is saying all these truisms. Like, we're all, you know, as women, we are often forced to deny ourselves in the pursuit of capital, right? Like, all of that is true. However, the book takes the position that, like, things go so much better for you if you just accept your femininity. <sighs> and you, it'll be easy for you to do that when you meet the right man. And the right man will bring out your femininity in you and, like, make you more woman. And how will they do that? Well, so they get to this cabin in Michigan, and she got the commission because her friend owns the lake house and it's on lake michigan yeah and it's not really winterized is it no no it's not which means it's not meant for people to live in year round and she falls through ice on a pond while he's out tape measuring something 
And he's like, that's why I didn't want you here. This is man's work. And it's like. She can hold the end of a tape measure, you fucking ass. But it's also like, why are, what are you actually, what was he even tape measuring? He was measuring the property line for like some ungod known fucking reason. I also, I like, I need to set the scene more of Clint Kelly. Hit us. Clint Kelly drives a pickup truck in the truck that also has flames coming out the side because he is, of course, a firefighter. In the truck, he has guns. He has rope. He has he has bullets in his leather vest. He's basically an oath keeper. <laughs> he says terrible things about women. Yeah. Obviously hates people. And like when she says something like, I'm trying to break the glass ceiling, he's like, is that a feminist term? And I'm like, it's 1995, Clint. <laughs> Fucking what? Go die. And then, like, but also this motherfucker doesn't have chains on his tires in Michigan with flames on his truck. I know. Good for you and your leather vest with bullets in it. Are you going <laughs> to shoot the snow out? Right. Like, your like, truck, like, like, you an idiot. Tough like, outdoorsy. God. So he brings this tape measure because he's going to measure the property line because he doesn't believe that it's been measured correctly or whatever. I guess he doesn't trust the government to keep proper records. Right. And so she wanders off because he said something uncouth. And so she just like wanders into a pond and then he sees it and he's like, obviously, that's a pond. (laughs) He saves her. She falls in naturally. Natch. He saves her and puts her in front of a fire, chops an entire tree down because, as Morgan said, the cabin has not been winterized. So there's no dry wood. I have a lot of I have a lot of issues with this immediately. So he chops a tree down so it's wet wood and then it immediately burns. And then he's just like splitting logs for four hours so that they have enough wood. But like that wood isn't dry. It's literally been a living tree. Wood and wood takes takes days he talks about putting it in the garage to dry no that's not how that works that's not true but even if it were this dude just like felled a tree on a property he doesn't own and is just trapping logs <laughs> to save her life okay whatever fine he also um, he catches a a stag no this is very important because this was like i was off the boat but like what really nailed the coffin for me was like they're walking the property and this this uh, covey of pheasants is startled. And then there's one pheasant that's been trapped in a little snare and he like breaks its neck. And she's like, why would you do that? We could have saved it. And he's like, no. And now we have something to eat. And I'm like, that's fucked up. And so then he's felled a tree at this point because she's after this pheasant incident, she's fallen into the pond. And then as Morgan just said, he goes out hunting deer. Like, he gets the gun out his truck and hunts a deer, all the while forgetting that he has literally killed a pheasant with his bare goddamn hands. He has to kill another massive animal and then field dresses it in the fucking garage of a house he doesn't own. Yeah. And, like, not to, like, put too fine a point on it, but, like, he also just, like, drops a line off Lake Michigan, like off the beach, and catches a walleye. Good point. Good point. I forgot about the walleye. I don't think it works like that. Like, I don't think you can just like kick a hole in the ice next to the beach, toss in a line, and like wait a couple hours and then you come back and you've got like a snagged walleye on the end of your line. 
Also, it's like a four pounder. I'm like, no way. He catches this stag at a wild apple tree. Mm -hmm. I don't think the apples are on the tree anymore at this point. No, they're on the ground. So he's just been waiting there. Amongst the mushy apples in the snow. All the while, he has a means of getting other food because he's dropped this line in the water, which isn't a thing. And he has a literal dead pheasant that he killed earlier. And guns. (laughs) But like, just shoot pheasant. You don't need an entire stag's worth of venison for two days. Right. That's the thing that kills me. It's like they get snowed in. The like roads are impassable. She fell through. They can't call anyone because the phone's broken. Like la 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 trapped in a cabin trope. Cool. But like you don't need 180 pounds of dead deer. No. Like you just don't. I will say this book does talk about this story does talk about the particular preparations of this game and it made me think how grateful I am that we're out of this phase in the 90s where game meat was considered delicious (laughs) (laughs) so I don't have to eat it too often it is game e but then she wakes up he gives her his flannel and so he's just shirtless but he puts his leather vest back on and that's the bullets with the bullets in it and that's how he's dressed shirtless but for a leather vest for the rest of the story and guess what they fall in love can you believe it she moves to his like little unwinterized cabin in michigan and has lots of sex and babies he gives her much lower than her full asking price and so she doesn't even make president's club she doesn't need to because this firefighter from grand rapids who can field dress a deer in a stranger's garage is gonna make sure this little lady never wants for nothing I read the editorial review of this book and it said the relation to Christmas types of relationships very widely, wildly. And I think widely, not wildly, but I'm going to say wildly because our second story doesn't even take place during Christmas. It's bookended by Christmases, but it takes place in like the spring and summer. Mm -hmm. And... Our main, our our hero, Julian St. Clair, like such a fey name for such a fey man. And Lisa. And Lisa is an American heiress and he has married her and he says he doesn't even really like her because he's very loyal to his ex-wife who. Dead wife. His ex-dead wife. (laughs) (laughs) And. He's very loyal to her, but his brother is dying from consumption and he needs her American heiress money to pay for his Swiss spa where he will die. Shout out to consumption. <laughs> it it consumes you quickly. You know, you're, you're going to get rosy cheeked and die. But it turns out this guy's pretty spry for a consumptive because he's back at the castle this whole time. When we meet her, she's, like, hiding out in her family's, like, I don't know, Providence, Rhode Island, one of those places, beach houses, uh, because she's trying to escape her engagement to him. Because after sharing several passionate smooches, she's discovered that he's only marrying her for her money. And he's like, yeah, that's true. But guess what? You got married, like, by proxy. By proxy already. So can't get out of this because he loves his brother so much. He doesn't want his brother to die. 
But uh, little does Lisa know, she's a foxy 18-year-old. So there's no way this isn't going to work out for her. (laughs) There's so much that I want to say both about the brother, Robert, Julian, and Lisa. Um, The fact that she has been on the lam from her affianced man for two months people two months she's been hiding out eating canned peaches at her rhode island beach house eating her broken heart out and like hiding by herself and the only person who knows where she is is her older stepsister who she likes very much st Clair finds her at the beginning of the story and like there's this huge like scene where it's like raining and there's banging on the door and the shutters and then he like drags her out and then he realizes and this is at Christmas time and she's like alone uh, and he re- like he puts her in front of a fire he also builds a fire for her I think this is like a theme in this like gift of joy compendium I guess I don't know and while he's like carrying her he realizes like how thin she is and she like faints from hunger and there's all this stuff but he like keeps commenting about how young she is and how naive she is and I was like maybe you shouldn't marry an 18 year old Well, to be honest, he was worried about it. He was like, last time I married an 18-year-old, she took my son to the lake. My son died, who was also her son. And then she also uh, took her own life because she couldn't deal with it. I can't handle these 18-year-olds. He's like, that is the pattern that I need to fix. And I got to say, he's not wrong. I don't think he's wrong either. I think the way that the... um... The the story thinks he's wrong. The story thinks he's wrong. His brother thinks he's wrong. The text certainly believes that it's not the fact that it's not the age that was the problem with the first wife. It was that she was weak. Yeah. It is not a very supportive. It does not have a very progressive understanding of depression and any of that. Womanhood, motherhood, which is... It shares in common with the story that preceded it. (laughs) It's hard to find a through line with these Christmas stories, but maybe hatred of women is it. (laughs) I think it might just be the sexism. (laughs) I think it literally is just the misogyny. (laughs) The utter lack of empathy for womankind. Yeah, I think that's what ties gift of joy. Well, and that's so true because our, our gal from the first story deeply resents her mother for being in love with her father. She says she even like rags on her mom for being called Susie instead of Susan by her father. And then at the end of the book, she's called Evie instead of Eve and her heart goes all a flutter. <laughs> yeah. I just ask you to get a grip. <laughs> <laughs> this Christmas, I... <laughs> Time is a flat circle. Yeah. The backlash of 1995, which feels very, especially in the first story, feels incredibly particular to like a young Hillary Clinton or other women making their way in the world visibly um, and in spaces of corporate and whatever power. This first story in particular feels like a reaction to I am not the type of person who makes cookies. Just kidding. Here are my cookies. And here's the the White House cookbook that I am forced to make because the culture wars are so toxic that here is the cookbook that you think that you want. You've won. Oh, wait, you still hate me. Yeah. Right? Like, there's literally no winning mm-hmm. 
in this, like, no one wins in this culture war. It, it just fucking sucks. And the moment of backlash that we're currently in also sucks. <laughs> but what I think is interesting is this current backlash is, like, you can be in the Coldwell Baker President's Club, but just go home to your cats, leave me to my trad wifing. Except that's not really how it works, because if you're trad wifing, which you came to via the crunchy uh, superhighway to right-wing beliefs, the way you got there, uh, you're voting to uh, extricate my rights from me. And for some reason, you hate the fact that I own a cat. I think it's because you wish you had a cat. It's like uh, this idea of female solidarity is being wielded as a cudgel. Also, I think it's really important that neither of these stories have any kind of female solidarity. Well, and there's no interest in it. They're not even pretending. Eve versus the secretary. And in the second story, it's Lisa who's sort of who is in opposition to the dead wife who was weak and terrible uh, because she died by suicide after her infant son drowned. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely a story where, like, women are fighting women. And I think in this current moment, that's actually what's happening. Yes. But if you provide any kind of critique, the fact that you're critiquing other women is used as a way to silence or undermine your arguments. Being like, you're not a real feminist because here you are critiquing me. I'm, I just want to can peaches. And not pay property taxes. <laughs> and vote for Marjorie Taylor Greene because I'm actually a feminist who votes for women. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, that's not what makes a feminist. Like, Phyllis Schlafly. Right. Not a feminist. Famously not a feminist. Or even like, what's her name with the wigs? <laughs> right. You're going to have to be more specific than that. She, who just recently declared herself independent. Oh, fucking Kristen Cinema. Yeah, Cinema. Yeah. A series of wigs and sparkly skirts does not a feminist make. No, it's true. And, like, that's the thing is good woman versus bad woman was very clear, was a very clear part of the original Culture Wars discourse. And this text has a very um, obvious perspective on that that I think was shared by the culture at large which is women can have jobs so long as they also take care of their kids so long as they you know don't have nannies and they bake cookies like they have to do they can do what a man does as long as they still do what a woman does as long as they season the fish right like and that they aren't in competition directly with their man or emasculating them and if they are in relation with men who are quote-unquote sensitive right like I think this is one of the things that I found immediately off-putting about the first story is that she's dating a man who asks her, like, what movie she wants to watch. And the text <laughs> itself is like, can you believe that he asked her what kind of movie she wants? What? He reads poetry. He wants his students to get in touch with their feminine side. What a fucking fay-ass bitch. He doesn't deserve women. He also has, like, clearly a toxic mother. Obviously. But... His choices to, like, 
the fact that he's like, I'm not going to seek out my girlfriend who's missing because she wouldn't want that. Right? Like, the fact that he's making a wrong assumption is somehow read as like, look at how bad he is at being a man. Whereas I feel like making wrong assumptions is the hallmark of masculinity. In romance novels. It certainly is. But more nefariously, in the second story, our hero's arc is that he comes to accept the fact that he hates his dead wife. Yep. And he blames her instead of blaming himself because she was responsible for their child. And he wasn't. Worse still, I think because, like, that's terrible, right? Like, that he hates her for the 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 accidental death of the child. And then it's taken him all this time to realize that he hates her rather than deifies her, right? Like, neither of these choices is great. But it's when his younger brother, Robert, is explaining this tragic backstory to Lisa. And he says, they turned away from each other for two days. And... For a moment, one brief shining moment, I was like, oh, this story is going to say something like really true about what it's like to lose a child as parents. Like nine out of 10 couples who lose a child divorce because it's too hard to stay together with the person that like has a lot of these memories. It's like very, very common for parents to break up after the death of a child because it's just it's just too hard. And oftentimes you do turn away from each other in grief when like the thing that like maybe might save the relationship if that's even a thing that you want to do when you're in like the worst kind of grief that you could ever imagine is turn towards each other but like that's that's not how human beings work and so for one brief shining moment i was like oh we're saying something real about grief but instead it immediately jumps to and two days later where she has been trapped alone in her room doing nothing but fucking blaming herself again she's only 18 listeners She just walks into the same lake that her child died in. And then everyone's like, she was weak. And it's like, no one was talking to her for two days. Like, she clearly felt blamed and she clearly was blaming herself. Whether or not, like, that's the subtext of that text for me. The text doesn't surface that because Robert's like, she's weak. And then, like, Julian's like, I hate her. (laughs) And then, like, Lisa's like, she sucks. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like... It's one thing, like, part of you could be like, all right, he's on his journey. You know, Julian is coming to terms with something terrible that happened. But the fact that she's like, yeah, no, she fucking blows my guy. Yeah. You're the good one. And he's like, you're right. I am the good one. And that's the resolution is super upsetting. And that it's the resolution of everyone, right? Like, everyone then shares this view. Yeah. What was your sexiest part? Thank you for asking. Do I get a sexiest part for both or should I just come up with one? Do one for both if you've got one for both. Oh, I I definitely do. My sexiest part for the first one was when he takes off his shirt Uh and gives it to her to cover her long johns because he cares about her modesty. Mm -hmm. And then he's wearing the leather bullet vest and has the Burt Reynolds I need you fur. to be, it's described as a pelt. It is described as a pelt. It's Let not okay. Um, I found it. Yeah, Isabel, read it to us. Let me find it. Here, take my shirt. 
It'll cover the long johns. He stripped off vest and shirt before she could protest. Eve's eyes slid across the wide expanse of muscled chest covered by a thick mat of black hair. He put the leather vest back on, leaving his hard biceps exposed. She couldn't help but stare, help staring at him. What do you do to keep in shape? She asked in wonder. Nothing. My job and my hobbies do it for me. Of course, that's the most masculine <laughs> way you can stay in shape. There was absolutely no point in asking him if he would be warm enough. A man like this couldn't possibly feel the cold. He looked like the Marlboro Man. I'll bring in more wood while you get dressed, he said tactfully. There's water, but it's cold. Don't stand under the cold shower for long. Okay. <laughs> Listen, I found this book profoundly off-putting. I was basically fighting uh, a gag reflex from minute one. So, like, the the leather vest was fine. So, like, a mat of fur was just no effect. This is the thing that, that makes me want to throw up the least. You were already desensitized. Well, then what was your sexiest part in the second story, The Miracle? The miracle being that he learns to hate his dead wife. <laughs> the reason for the season. <laughs> what was my sexiest part? There is a lot of yelling and then a lot of crying. They're constantly screaming at each other. Every time Every time he feels a quote unquote heaviness in his groin. Yeah, I didn't like that phrase at all. There's also the part where his brother tells her how to seduce him and it was basically like bend him over and ask him to decorate the if you can decorate the house and it works and it works uh, that was actually my weirdest part but um uh, trying to find <laughs> so my sexiest she cries a lot she purses her lips and chokes back sobs like this it's not a very sexy story when he finally comes to terms with the fact that he's wanted her like part of this story is that it's supposed to be a slow burn where he's like fighting his desire for her because he's going to live in this proxy marriage with her without ever having sex with her um because she can't take it he can't take it he can't take the heartbreak of another kid so he's just not gonna have sex with her but she wants to have sex with him and she wants this to be a real marriage and there's like a whole conversation that's very funny to me about it um but when he finally relents and is like I've always wanted you and like kisses all over her. He like definitely goes down on her, which is nice. He like destroys her bedroom. Yeah. At the ball. At the ball. There are people there. I I also like that, I guess. (laughs) There are people having a party downstairs. And he just like totally tears everything apart and like also gives her cunnilingus. And she's like, I didn't know this could happen. I'm like, you're 18 and we're cloistered era. So it doesn't surprise me that you didn't know that this was an act that could be shared. I also hadn't thought about that. But yeah, the second story is supposed to be a slow burn. It is. Absolutely. But it doesn't really work as a slow burn because a slow burn should be quiet. He's constantly like, get out of my room. What were your sexiest parts? Um, so my sexiest part in Christmas Eve, the first story, the contemporary story, 
was, I mean, they make love for the first time in front of the fire. The second time, it is, I think the sexier sex scene is in the sauna in the house. It does involve the phrase, Clint slipped a finger into her sugared sheath. Um, But I think overall, it's pretty good. And in the second story? In the second story, um, sexiest part, I do like the, I do like the jealousy, like, you know, in a, in a desert, any oasis, right? And there is this sense of, like, actually, that's where the slow burn stuff is, because he doesn't want to hurt his brother's feelings, So he doesn't want to show his brother that he's feeling jealous because that would imply he doesn't trust his brother. And he's not really jealous because he thinks something is going on. He just doesn't like that she's giving Robert more attention than him. And that Robert has an ease with her that he doesn't have. And like, yeah. And so I think about when he returns from London and he see, he goes and sees Robert and Lisa hanging out by the lake having a little picnic and he just kind of stiffly tries to be a part of their fun and fails i found that to be charming and also kind of sexy to be desired from afar it's hard to like connect with lisa and kind of get that shared sense of like i do think there's a certain amount of like she's like me that one has to undergo to feel that affection and i just didn't get that with Lisa. I didn't either. I felt the most affection for Edith, who is the sister of the dead child killer wife. Um, the book's words, not ours. And uh, she's deeply in love with Robert, the consumptive younger brother. Um, and he is really upset because it looks like she's constantly just like coming over to the house to like hang out with Julian and like fuck up the thing that he's trying to get Julian to fall in love with Lisa. Um, and she's like, I don't love Julian. I don't know why you keep saying that. Like you're stupid. Um, and then turns out that she's been carrying a torch for the consumptive younger brother this whole time. And then Christmas miracle, Robert, that rapscallion doesn't have tuberculosis at all. He was just pretending because he knew his brother needed to marry a hot American to get out of his slump. Love a younger brother who's always thinking of number one. That Ray Cal, Robert, Bobby, if you will. I will also say, because I feel this sexiest part, I want to do some shout outs to some positive things. There was a line in the first story that made me laugh out loud. Mm-hmm. Eve lit up a cigarette. She was trying to quit stop smoking, but tended to s- reach for one when she was annoyed. Clint frowned. That's a dangerous habit. That's all right. If I set myself on fire, you're obviously qualified to put it out. <laughs> that is funny. It's funny. The first story was very hard for me. It is funny. It's also like just funny to read about like yeah. sexism like this in the way because like it felt so ostentatious as time is a flat circle. So I don't want to say that like we've made progress because I don't actually believe that's true. But like I felt removed from the blatant sexism of this story, which was like enjoyable and it's like 
rear view version. But in the second story, I actually read the first four chapters out loud in front of my little space heater uh, with the hubs. And um, it was a very enjoyable experience. The first two chapters in that weird beach house in Rhode Island and like... It's an interesting concept. Yeah. And it's like, it was, there was enough that was surprising and like enjoyable. And it's like, I, I like to read out loud in front of a little like fake fire. And so like, I had fun reading these. Yeah. But I don't think they're like sexy. And I do think that they're like, they feel like artifacts. Yeah, I mean, like, they're having fun. It's just we have context. Yes, that's so good. That's perfect way of saying it. I also love that the second story is a Gilded Age romance bef- well before that became a trend. I like that about it. But what was your weirdest part besides the big ideas that we've talked about already? So my weirdest part in the first one is that he, like, has to kill this deer but we talked about that so like the way that this is functioning is really fucked up also like she has this waking dream in her hypothermic state where she sees her parents talking about her love interest and her dad's like well i'm not gonna walk her down the aisle unless it's to a real man and i'm like that's a fucked up thing that's like a super fucked up thing to think that your dad is saying but it's like supposed to be like or whatever um And then in the very next story, we find out that the dad that she loves, Lisa's dad, has allowed this count to marry her by proxy. And I'm like, this sucks. Like, what the fuck is happening with all of this, like, women as chat lane in 1995? And then also, like, the conclusion of the miracle is it's Christmas and her Christmas present is her family coming to visit. Yep. And she's so happy to see them. The people who got her married by proxy. While she was on the lam in Rhode Island. Yeah, like, that was super fucking weird to me, where I'm like, you say that you love these people, but, like, they did you dirty. It's very father knows best. Yeah, super duper. And and for, for it having so little space on the page, for both of these dads to function this way in such a short amount of time and really off stage. Mm-hmm. It was weird. Like, they cast a long shadow in the text. And so then it just felt like our heroines were sandwiched between the bricked-up psychos yeah. that they were supposed to be interested in and their dads. Their which... dads who d- don't really like them. Or, <laughs> yeah, or the women that they're married to. What was your weirdest part? So in the first story, my weirdest part is when they first arrive at the house in Michigan she goes into the barn and she thinks about how sexy barns are the first thing Eve noticed was the smell the scent of hay and straw straw mingled with the lingering miasma of horses who had occupied the stalls once upon a time how was it barns and hay always conjured fantasies of lovemaking Eve wondered she certainly never had a romantic encounter in a barn yet And spoiler alert, she doesn't have a romantic encounter in the barn, but she does think about the Christ child. She enters the barn again later, and it says stable smells assailed her as she entered. You'll remember the straw and the hay and the miasma of horses from moments ago. And it suddenly brought home to her that this day was celebrated because the Christ child was born in a manger. (laughs) 
She thought of Mary giving birth in such a place. (laughs) And then she thought of her own mother. How worried Susan must be because Eve hadn't shown up this morning. They would likely be searching for her. And it would very likely ruin their Christmas. So she goes from being like, boy, I get why people get so, use the phrase roll in a hay, to being like, I get why Jesus was tucked in hay. And Mary, the mother of God, is just like my mom. (laughs) Probably pretty freaked out right now. God bless us, everyone. The weirdest part to me in the second story is that Julian and Lisa have the first dance at this ball that they're hosting to kind of christen all of the renovations that she's been doing with her money. I Need I remind you? Like, that's the other thing. This story, like, talks about how, like, after she moves to the castle, it's just, like, suddenly... She's, like, asking permission to hire servants, and no one is questioning the fact that it's with her money. Like, he's broke. She goes to... They're they're having this first dance. She's kind of getting, like, a little tickle, and he... Julian says, it is traditional, Lisa, nothing more. And she gets really upset, because that hurts her feelings, As he began to sweep her effortlessly around the floor, she closed her eyes, acutely aware of every powerful inch of him, of the extraordinary tension filling them both. If only she could stop loving him, if only her heart was as cold as his. The crowd applauded them, tears stinging her eyes. Lisa met Julian's gaze. Don't cry, he whispered. His unexpected sympathy, just saying don't cry, and sudden tenderness, all he did was say don't cry, undid Lisa. Tears spilled down her face. Julian halted in mid-stride, trying to break free of his embrace. Lisa began to weep. She rationalized that Julian was watching her, apparently horrified. The crowd was utterly silent. She ran from the room. To make it better, uh, Robert, Julian's brother, then just like starts shouting at Edith that it's all her fault for being too flirty and he makes Edith cry and leave the room and then after this all anyone can talk about is how great the ball was Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is Mm -hmm. absurd Mm -hmm. everyone everyone loves a good gossip well I'll tell you what one woman screaming crying leaving the room that's gossip two women screaming crying and running from the ballroom that makes me think there's a gas leak (laughs) Gasly. <laughs> we should all be screaming, crying, and running That's from really the room. Good. But instead, they all just, like, I guess, shrug and, like, start dancing again. It's like a Dothraki wedding. If, like, two people aren't dead, is it even a wedding? Like, it's, yeah. So intense. Also, like, for our first ever story that takes place in Ireland, I'm disappointed. I'm also disappointed because I feel like... Christmas is the time of short stories that you can very much get away with the just one bed trope and the like snowed in trope and the fact that every story in this compendium is so loosely tied together at all, um, but doesn't, they don't all use that most perfect trope. Disappointing. It's a no man's for me. 
Obviously. It's a super no man's. Uh, if you are hungry for a Christmas novella, might I recommend the one that we discussed last year? Because that did. Okay. A Christmas Gone Perfectly Wrong by Cecilia Grant. That does have a one bed. That does have a slow burn. Like everything about that short story was perfect. I feel like every other holiday story that we've read has been better than this absolutely as an artifact of like peak culture wars as an artifact of also like peak christmas wars maybe like christmas obviously won uh it's like killing thanksgiving and encroaching on halloween um christmas is the aggressor <laughs> yeah. like i i'm not exactly sure what i'm supposed to do with this bright uh neon pink blue and blue snowflake gift of joy like i don't like it was so unenjoyable i don't know if there's a way to i don't know if there's a way to enjoy it either you know what i mean Typically, even when we say no man's, there's a person who we can think of who would enjoy the story. That's just not the case here. It's very upsetting. It's upsetting. Uh, with that. Loosen your stays. But never your holiday principles. It's 2022. Your Yule principles. Your winter solstice principles. Mwah. Woli guacamole, everyone! Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time. <laughs>